So uh, a lot of people love that old Christmas carol that we just uh, sang together. Um, but most people don't know the history behind it. Are you interested? I'm going to tell you anyway. So um, <laughs> in, in the mid-1800s, a small church in a little town in France had its pipe organ renovated, and it was a big deal. And to celebrate its first Christmas, uh, the parish priest asked a local poet to write, uh, to write something they could put to music. And so in 1847, a guy named Placide Capot uh, wrote a poem titled Midnight Christians. And the opening stanza went like this. Midnight Christians is the solemn hour when God as man descended unto us to ease the stain of original sin and to end the wrath of his father. The entire world thrills with hope on this night that gives it a savior. People kneel down, await your deliverance, Christmas, Christmas, here is the Redeemer. Now, that's not, that is not a bad summary of the incarnation and the good news of God's love and grace in Jesus, considering it was written by an atheist. That's right, Capot was an avowed atheist. Apparently, there were no poets in the local church at the time, and they asked him to write the song, and he agreed to do it. Uh, eight years later, in 1855, a pastor in Boston named John Sullivan Dwight adapted uh, the original lyrics uh, into English into what we sing today. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. O oh, hear the angel voices, O oh, night divine, O oh, night when Christ was born. Uh, some of our staff, <clears throat> we were talking together about this song a few weeks ago, and there's one particular line that caught our attention. It's a line that says, A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. And so we got an idea. Now, two years ago, heading into December 2013, uh, as many of you remember, as a church, we embarked on a two-year ministry initiative called All In. All In being a colloquialism used in our culture to describe a person who is, you know, fully committed to something, committed to someone, you know. And when somebody's in passion, when they're sold out, when, they're, when there's no holding back, we say, man, they are all in. And we challenged one another to be an all-in kind of church, a group of Jesus followers uh, fully committed to and in passion toward and sold out for God in terms of serving and, and giving of ourselves and of our financial resources to the cause of Christ locally, regionally, and globally. In fact, as a church, we committed to give over $7.3 million over a two-year period uh, to fund not only our, our general operating expenses here, but to, to do a number of ad additional projects, um, both here and around the world. And at this point, uh, along the way, we've received uh, over $6.2 million, which means that we're 96% we're, we're of the way through the two-year initiative, with 84% of our funding received. And that's something to celebrate. But as we, end the, as we approach the end of the year, I would, I would ask you to join me in making a, a sacrificial end-of-the-year contribution to, uh, to help close that gap. You know, and, and, and so we can finish all in as, as strong as we possibly can. I ask you to join me in doing that. And let me just remind you of a couple of things. You know, along with everything that we do here week after week after week, your generosity over the last two years 
has allowed us to build a home in Kolkata, India called Mahima, Mahima Home. It's a home for underage girls uh, in Kolkata who've been rescued uh, from the sex trafficking trade. We've also helped build a home for young boys born into those city brothels in Kolkata, uh, realizing that um, uh, part of the problem uh, is that um, the, these, these, these children born into, into the brothels, especially the boys, they, go, they end out on the street, they become the, the pimps and the perpetrators, and rescuing them is equally as important. And so we were able to participate in building a home for those boys that opened this past spring. Your generosity has gone to support ministry partners all over the globe, Middle East, Europe, Africa, the Philippines, South America. A closer to home, we've been able to fund and staff, mostly through volunteers, a ministry to two local schools just east of us along North Avenue, schools that have a high population of under-resourced families and at-risk students. Now, we've established a mentoring program for many of those students. Uh, just this year, uh, we... Um, we uh, launched an after-school educational intervention initiative uh, with, uh, for students at risk that has been so successful, the school district would like us to expand it. Imagine that, the local church and the public schools working together. Who'd have thunk, you know? Amazing. Uh, here on our own campus, we've been able to um, purchase the property just next door to our east that went on the market unexpectedly last spring, and now we're using it throughout the week for a number of things, including housing 70 middle schoolers on Sunday mornings. We've also been able to completely renovate our old building, designing a brand new space in which uh, our own children can learn about Jesus and grow in their faith, and, 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 and it can serve our young families well. And that's just really the tip of the iceberg. I could go on and on and on and tell you a lot more about, about what we've done and what we're doing, but, but rather than talking about the what of it all, I would much rather consider the why. You know, why have we been able to accomplish all this and more? Not, not just in the past two years, but over the past 20. I mean, why, why have we um, been able to set a ministry direction that's taken us from just a handful of people to where we are today? There are some who would suggest it has to do with vision, commitment, leadership, creativity, generosity, giftedness, and uh, no question those things are a part of it. But I don't believe that's the answer. I believe the reason Parkview has, has experienced such an enduring, healthy, and impactful ministry is because of hope. Hope. From the day I became pastor here, uh, we've had and we've maintained this individual and collective sense and, and really an undeniable conviction that somehow, some way, God was going to do something special. And he was going to use the efforts and the generosity that we put forth together on his behalf to impact our world for Jesus. And, uh, and we're going to see people's lives transformed here and around the world. We've, we've had hope. That's been a key. And you know, given the state of our, of our world today, uh, most people need hope. You know, most people want hope, but uh, overall, culturally speaking, it's lacking. I recent, recently started reading uh, this book titled The Future of Hope, edited by uh, William Katterberg, who's a cultural historian, and Miroslav Volf, who is a theology professor at Yale. 
And I say started reading because, I mean, this is really heady stuff. Um, it's a collection, and I didn't know this going in, it's a collection of articles written by scholars on the topic of hope, and it is just, it is tough going. Uh, in fact, he here's the opening statement. The editors write, over the last three decades, a major cultural shift has taken place in the attitudes of Western societies toward the future. Optimism has given way to a sense of ambiguity. Messianic and utopian modes of thought have capitulated before the drawing of apocalyptic scenarios. This shift isn't just a fleeting mood. People feel we dare not hope for a future substantially better than the present. That's a mouthful. That's hard to read out loud. And that's only the opening statement. Um, but overall, I can tell you this. The authors are essentially saying that a lot of people don't believe the future will be better than the past a belief that sociologists refer to as optimism bias. It's on, the, it's on the decline. Here's my Reiki translation. People have lost their sense of hope. Why? Well, it's because it is, it is a weary world that we live in, as the, as the Christmas carol goes. A weary world. A world in which, <clears throat> as we've seen again this week, is filled with hate, violence, Racism, greed, injustice, crime, deceit, corruption, all of it played out day after day after day and reported to us ad nauseum via newspapers, periodicals, radio, TV, internet, and social media. And the daily bombardment of all this bad, disturbing news is just sucking the life out of people. It's just draining away our optimism bias. It's just draining away our sense of true hope. And that's a big deal because hope is the fuel that makes the world a better place. It's one of the things that distinguishes us from animals, even Charles Darwin, for all his emphasis on the similarities between animals and humans, believed that. He wrote all, he said, as humans, if we have no hope, we despair. Animals don't despair. They have no abstract concept of anxiety, no ability to worry because they have no abstract concept of the future and therefore no hope. But as humans, we, we can reason in the abstract. We have the capacity to be consciously aware of our fear and anxiety. We live with a sense of the future. We are beings in search of reality. And therefore, we look beyond ourselves for that which is yet to come. We, in short, we experience hope. As the well-known Swiss theologian Emile Brunner once put it, uh, what oxygen is to the lungs such as hope to the meaning of life. But what is hope exactly? And that's a good question since most people long for it. But uh, too often, people, even, even as Christians, we, we view hope as, as nothing more than unsure optimism. Along, it's sort of along the lines of wishing for things. I wish for this, I wish for that, I wish that would happen, I wish this would happen. And our wishing is often about our own convenience more than anything else. But there's no assurance in wishing. Hope is much more than that. In fact, in, the, in both the Old and New Testament, the biblical concept of hope is all about certainty. It refers to a strong and confident expectation that, there, that something good is going to happen. And where optimism is directed by progress and circumstance, hope is built on the conviction that another, another kingdom, another world, another reality exists. Hope endures when optimism fades. And understand, hope isn't just an ideal. 
It's never static or a, it's never a passive thing. It's, it's dynamic, it's active, it's directive, it's life-sustaining. It's not an escape from reality or, or problems. It doesn't leave us idle and you know, drifting or rocking on the front porch thinking about what could be. If our hope is biblical, it will shift us into high gear and get us moving, which is why it's so essential to a healthy life and an enduring ministry. Dr. Neil Clark Warren is a clinical psychologist and founder of eHarmony.com. And uh, he spent a majority of his career studying and counseling married couples. And he would tell you that his primary goal in counseling was to help even the most troubled couples get as, as, as little as 10% improvement in their relationship because he says, once people see improvement, they, they gain hope. He says it's the indispensable fuel for all human activity. And he's right. Because when hope dies, motivation dies. And then there's no longer any reason to try anything. But once hope enters into a relationship, once hope enters into a marriage, once hope enters into a church, anything is possible. And as a church, we believe that. And so we've held on tightly to hope. Not a goofy, you know, schmarmy, don't worry, be happy attitude, but a deep, abiding confidence and expectation that with God, the future is always bright, and we will prevail and the impossible is possible. And we haven't been let down. So it's important for us, I think, both individually and corporately, to monitor our hope because it's an easy thing to lose. At least it is for me. And if you think about it, every day we wake up and we face life and the, the responsibilities and the challenges of it, the, the, the good, the bad, the unexpected circumstances. And it's just really easy to get worn down and worn out. In fact, um, clinical researchers say that mornings are generally the times when anxiety, discouragement, and depression are likely to hit us the strongest. And I guess that's why in the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah writes this, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. And it seems like even the ancient writers of Scripture realized the fragile nature of hope and our need to monitor it, you know, to recognize and remind ourselves every single day that, that God is good and he is faithful and he is merciful. Doing that involves you know, personal Bible study. It involves prayer. Uh, it involves participation in community. But it seems to me that another part of monitoring hope involves being aware of and, and being careful of hope busters. People around us who either intentionally or unintentionally have a way of just shattering hope. You say, man, come on, man. Is that really that important? Well, you tell me. Be honest. Two people are walking in your direction. One of them over here is the most positive, encouraging person you ever met. The other person over here is the most negative, discouraging person you know. Who are you going to go toward? Who are you going to move? Who do you want to spend time with? This person. You know it's true. It's true in every setting. It's just, it's just reality, you know. There are people around us who, for whatever reason, tend to at best weaken hope and at worst destroy it. And one thing that I've learned over the years is that these people and their voices exist in our lives in general, uh, and they exist also in the context of church ministry. 
Uh, for example, there's, uh, there's the critic, the person who feels it's their calling to immediately criticize what they see, what they hear, what they experience, what they don't understand, what they don't like. Uh, their initial response is always negative. They tend to focus on what's wrong versus what's right, on what can't be done versus what can be done. And don't misunderstand. I mean, constructive criticism is a good positive thing. Uh, it's necessary for growth and maturity. But for the critic, criticism and negativity is simply a way of doing life. It's, it's constant. It's relentless. It's uninvited and can be very destructive, especially when it comes to hope. Closely related to the critic is the cynic, the person who quietly, or maybe not so quietly, believes the worst of people without calling for the best. Their distrust and suspicion of everyone's motives, their jaded sarcasm uh, about ideas, events, and people is a hope killer. There's also the alarmist, the person who views everything as a crisis. They serve as a kind of lightning rod and conduit of everyone else's concerns and, and readily and happily voice those concerns, sometimes to the appropriate people, oftentimes not. They see warning signs everywhere. Red flags go up all, all over the place. Their inclination is to worry about everything and fear most things. There's the historian, the person who's always the first to explain how what we did yesterday is far better than what we're trying to do today and, or what we want to do tomorrow. You know, for them, change uh, should be avoided at all costs because in their minds, the known past is safer than the unknown future. They are change resistant. They are risk aversive. And then there's the hyper. And I'm not talking about energy here. I'm talking about the person who makes significant commitments, but more often than not fails to follow through. They make promises, they talk a big game, their game, their intentions are good, but there's all and there's a lot of hype in their words, but not a lot of substance and faithful follow through in their lives. And in a very troubling way, Hype builds hope and then just trashes it. And then, of course, there's the quitter, the person who, who starts out strong but quickly fades and grows weary. It's the person who views a failed attempt at something good to be reason to quit rather than seeing it as divine redirection or a learning opportunity or a chance to do something different. Now, you may be thinking, man, Ray, you're being a little harsh here calling these things out. But I'm not being harsh. If I'm being harsh, I'm being harsh on myself because I've been all of these things. All of these things on the list. I've been them. Over 20 years, the last 20 years, there have been times when I felt tired and seriously considered quitting, just walking away from ministry and not turning back. I've been the hype guy. I've been the historian, the guy afraid of change and who wants to hold on to the past. I've experienced the worry and the fear of the alarmist i got to confess to playing the role of the critic and the cynic, which comes most naturally to me, which is why it's on the top of the list. They are not helpful things, and they are certainly not hopeful things. But I'm just being honest about them. So take a look at the list, and you be honest. Who are you? What comes most naturally to you? And if you're not sure, ask somebody. I'm sure someone will be glad to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> what comes most naturally to you? I mean, considering this, understanding it, and being honest about it 
helps you, helps me, helps all of us continue to move away from being hope busters to becoming more and more hope builders. Men and women who consistently dispense hope to and encourage hope in those around us. And I, I don't know about you, but that's really who I want to be. Well, how does, how does that happen? Well, hope building happens when before we do or say anything else, we look for and focus on the positive in people and in situations. It's when our greatest desire is to be constructive and helpful and envision what can be accomplished. It happens when we believe and expect the best in people first. It's when we affirm and empower their gifts, their talents, their passions, and their contribution to the cause. Hope building happens when we're wise and discerning, but not foolishly alarming. It occurs when we listen to concerns, but don't get caught up in or operate in crisis mode. It happens when we respect and acknowledge the past while at the same time joyfully embrace the future and its potential. And most importantly, while fear is a natural human emotion, we don't allow it to control us and debilitate us. We don't avoid trying new things, welcoming new opportunities, risking new initiatives. Hope building means we make radical commitments and we keep them. We give of ourselves and of our resources to an inspiring degree. It happens when our lives are consistent with our words. It happens when we demonstrate a strong and confident expectation that the best is yet to come and the impossible is possible. And because we believe that, because we really believe that, we never give up. But here's the deal. The only way we become true hope builders is by being careful about where we place our hope. You know, what's the basis of hope for us? It's certainly not circumstances, because circumstances change. You know, David and Grace, who were up here reading for us this morning and lighting our candle just several weeks ago, lost everything they had in a house fire. Yet they're up talking and praying about hope. Well, last week this time, on Saturday, I lost my mother-in-law. Suddenly, she died. And the past week has been complicated to say the least, dealing with all the details that follow death. Death is not simple. It is complicated. And yet in the midst of that, I had to write these words on hope. And I'm writing and I'm thinking, do I believe this? Hope cannot be based on circumstances because circumstances turn on a dime. But Jesus said, if you build your house on sand, when the storm comes, it is going to wash it away. We don't build on circumstances. Our hope is not built on our own human ingenuity or effort. It's not based on money or budgets, trends or technologies, nor in governments or economies. Our hope, our optimism bias, our confidence and high expectations rest on God alone, who is altogether loving, gracious, faithful, and powerful. We don't hope for something. We hope in someone. And we can be people of hope, a church filled with it because of our God. Again, Jeremiah said in the Old Testament, he says, I, we have hope because of the Lord's great love. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. In the Psalms, David writes, God, no one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. The prophet Isaiah wrote, Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace. 
into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And listen to what the Apostle Peter writes to Christians. He says, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you. Here's my Reiki summary. Because of Jesus, because of his, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, because of God's greatness, God's goodness, God's grace, because of the eternal life that awaits us, we are his people, a people of hope. It's who we're called to be. It's who we're meant to be. As a church, hope is at the core of, of our message to the world. It energizes our life, our mission, our ministry. Hope pushes us to the extreme. It makes our life an adventure as we hold on to God by faith and live on the edge in order to accomplish the impossible. Do you want to know what that kind of faith, that kind of hope looks like? you want to know what that kind of hope really feels like? I think it feels like this. Check it out. So that was me on the bike. <laughs> Just another day at the office. You know, My wife keeps saying, stop riding that way. Um... So you tell me, does that ride represent how you and I live as followers of Jesus? Does it? Does it illustrate, you know, the thrill of our spiritual journey, the excitement of it? Probably not. In fact, I would suggest the greatest problem in the church in America today is boredom. Boredom. Because too many of us as Christians have settled for the dull safety of the status quo, the monotony of personal comfort. And so there, there is little, if any, sense of a thrilling adventure with God because here's the deal. Adventure embraces risk. Risk flows out of hope. And hope is the result of faith. And it's by faith we're called to live. Do we? Will we? I've been around Parkview for a lot of Advent seasons. And we've had a lot of good ones. Uh, and this year I'm praying for the reality of God's love and grace offered to us in Jesus to touch each of us more deeply and more significantly than ever before and inspire us forward uh, in this adventurous journey of, of bringing the good news of a Savior to our world. In fact, as I see it, the joy you know, and the, the, the thrill of hope is not just what the weary world needs, it's what the weary church needs. It's what we all need. For hope inspires. It sees the invisible. It feels the intangible. It achieves the impossible. And it is fueled by a strong and confident expectation that God's best for us is yet to come. And I believe that's true. Do you? Let's pray. Our Father, I, I pray this morning that we would have uh, the courage to look at our lives as those who have committed them to Jesus, committed ourselves to you, who are concerned about our world, its brokenness, the violence, the tragedies we see. We recognize the need the world has of true 
lasting hope, the need the world has of your grace, the need this weary world has of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would commit ourselves to bringing this news through our words, through our lives, through our ministries here and around the world. And I pray, God, that um, where we need to be challenged, uh, that you would challenge our hearts. Don't allow us to become dull and monotonous, but may we, may we risk it all for the one who gave us life everlasting. I ask these things in his name. Amen. Let's stand together. So here's the deal, you know, maybe, maybe for the first time today, uh, this whole idea of Christianity has like a light bulb kind of going on and you're, you're beginning to get it, that it's not about your good works and your efforts. It's about the grace of God. It's about what God has done for you in Jesus. And uh, believing in him, put your, putting your hope in him for forgiveness and life eternal is what it means to be a Christian. And maybe for the first time you've gotten that, you've, you've, you now understand it and you, you have indeed put your hope in Jesus. Would, would you just let me know? We have a prayer wall out in the lobby uh, for the all throughout the Advent season. We're encouraging people to just write prayers for people, for themselves. You know, roll it up and stick it in and, and, and we're going to pray for those requests and for those people. But if you've, you've finally put your hope in Jesus for the first time, or maybe you just kind of a recommitment to that, uh, just write a note. Let me know and put it in our little prayer uh, wall over there and uh, I'll certainly pray for you. Okay? Come back next week. We're going to continue with this series, Advent, The Thrill of Hope. And uh, we're going to move pretty rapidly toward Christmas. So I'm excited about that. I hope you are as well. Let me pray and then we're dismissed. And now, Father, we ask that uh, as, as your church leaves this place, that we would go not with, not with fantasies in mind, not with empty words or, or just wishing things to be so, but that we would go with a confident expectation, true hope in you, our God and Redeemer. And may our lives be lived in such a radical way through our words and through our actions, through our gifts and generosity, through our care for people, that uh, we point others to Jesus and bring this hope to a weary world. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.